0: Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University in Oklahoma City. And I'm joined by Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Good morning, Michael. Hi, how are you doing this week, Trey? It's a really good week. As a matter of fact, apparently uh, we didn't realize how great of a month and a weekend it was until the other day when we shared birthdays (laughs) right next to one another. So
1: happy belated birthday. Yes, and happy early birthday to you. How about that? I know, it's fun. August was yeah.
0: apparently or I guess really the fun month was uh a few months prior to August. We won't talk about yeah, that but, on the Yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know, it's been it's been a fascinating week in politics. And I think what we're gonna be probably most interested in, we're gonna start with, is something very near and dear to your heart. Because I mean you're in Kentucky, so this is Ohio back uh the Ohio Twelfth District Special Election had some really fascinating takeaways. I've got some things I'm interested in, but I'm wondering, Michael, what, what was your kind of take? You're right there.
1: Well, uh, we we still don't really know who the winner is quite yet. There's a there's still a gap of uh, a little over a little over fifteen hundred votes. We think that I know Troy Balderson, the Republican, probably may squeak squeak by and win it. But I guess my my way of looking at it is I am just. I am very happy at at this result. It's not not the perfect result. I would have uh, certainly wanted to see O'Connor win, and I don't think he will. But this is another very strong showing by Democrats in a district that has been solidly Republican for quite a long period of time. And not only that, not only that, but the Republicans had a step in at the last minute and they vastly outspent the Democrats. And so even even the fact that this was a strongly Trump district, they, Trump won it by 11 points in 2016. The Republicans have controlled it since 83. I think the last um, Uh, The the last the last time in 2016, the Republican candidate won by uh, 37 points. Yes, it was in uh, in 2016. So this is a this is a super strong result for for the Democrats. And I think it's just another indication that if things keep on going as they have been going, uh, 2018, November 2018, is going to look very, very good for House Democrats.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree, but it's interesting when you kind of delve into the numbers a little bit, you know, where the shift is occurring, because where it seems that Republicans are losing, and this appeared to have been a trend anywhere, but I think the Ohio 12th district is, you know, the best case of this yet, is that suburban voters seem to be kind of fleeing the Republican Party. So if you take yeah. a look at like Franklin County, 58%, 57% for the Republican in 2012 and 2016, only thirty-five percent for the Republican in twenty eighteen. That's a shift of twenty-three points. Yeah, um, and that and that is a huge. Now, what is interesting is is there's a little bit of makeup in more rural counties, but the uptick in rural counties is not enough to overcome the downtick in the suburban. So, uh, Balderson, you know, he he's losing about 13 percent. Uh, from 2016 compared to his predecessor
1: yeah I mean it's and like I said, and if you take a look at the spending too uh, outside group spending, Democratic groups were outspent somewhere around four to one um, uh, and we look at inside the campaigns, O'Connor, the uh, Republican candidate, spent around two and a half million on ads and it was uh around five hundred and seventy thousand for Balderson's campaign so this is uh this is a big deal and it's got a lot of uh supposedly it's got a lot of uh, House Republicans very worried now now Donald Trump Of course, points out, and he's right, saying that Republicans have won the vast majority of House seats in special elections. Now, he uh, in his tweet, he got the number wrong, actually, but you know, he (laughs) all the facts are. Well, uh, that has appeared to be an issue
0: this week for Trumps. I don't know if you would noticed that uh, Donald Jr. had actually uh, tweeted out a picture of approval ratings between Donald Trump and Obama, which had Mm -hmm. been obviously photoshopped.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was. Uh, but his general point was correct in that uh, in that, you know, most the vast majority of these races, uh, the seven out of uh, eight, I think, of them uh, are uh, are actual, I'm sorry eight out of 10. Sorry, uh, Republicans have won. But we're, we're, when you look at the makeup of the districts and how each party performed compared to what historically we would expect, Democrats have been strongly outperforming their, uh, you know, their uh, expectations and their enthusiasm. Their turnout has been higher, which mm-hmm. is, and, and again, as political scientists, we know that uh, the party in power in the presidency tends to do uh, poorly, I think, uh, in, in midterm elections, I think losing, generally speaking, an average of in the low 30s that's, uh, of that's seats. Right. So, I mean, this is a case where we're not even if we were just generic Republican candidate, not Donald Trump, we would be potentially expecting you know, something along these lines, even with a good economy. And you add in Donald Trump and what we're seeing is is I think it's not at all unrealistic to, for Democrats to expect a, you know, a pickup of 30 plus seats and they only need 23 to uh, to retain or to gain control of the majority in the House.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And I I think that that is one of the difficult things. And I know a lot of listeners via email and social media have been kind of asking about or criticizing the blue blue wave, as it's being called. But you're right to point out that the base rate here supports Democrats. And so you have to begin your analysis by saying, well, where is it going to move from? You know, approximately 30 seats for Democrats. And I think you're absolutely right in suggesting that I think the 12th district, if the suburban move continues to be widespread, I I predict that you're probably going to have a few more than 30 seats maybe move over to the Democratic Party.
1: Yeah and, and you know one of those races that we're going to be watching of course in in November will be uh, O'Connor and Balderson the rematch uh, because uh, no matter what happens here uh who who wins the two candidates will be running for the you know the regular election in November which is a very weird sort of circumstance obviously but uh, they certainly will know each other very well and it'll be interesting to see because one of the things that Democrats are counting on is that Republicans won't be able to consistently outspend them by so much, which is what they did to potentially hang on to this seat. And when it's a nationwide thing, as opposed to a special election, you can't just pour all that money in because you have to worry about a lot more seats, essentially.
0: Yeah. And, you know, my kind of my last comment on this, Michael, is that I think one of the other takeaways from this is that it's establishment Democrats who seem to be doing the best. Good point. And I think for a lot on the left that they want to take this move to the left is meaning that there's this huge kind of left. There's a left wing insurgency in the Democratic Party, and they want to take this as a win. And while I'm not trying to be you know, dramatic, I think that it's worth pointing out that it appears in the basis of these kinds of special elections that that's not what's moving people. It's the mainstream Democratic Party.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. In fact, if we take a look more broadly at the elections that the primaries that took place this week, it was a good week for centrist kind of moderate Democrats. And, you know, I've been saying all along that the party's move to the left is something that I think is ultimately not going to be a good thing. And so I've been pleased to see that a lot more centrist-type candidates have been have been winning, and I think that's actually going to help the party out considerably with these type of suburban voters who might have been a little bit on the fence come November.
0: Agreed. I think in all honesty, if you can have Hillary Clinton, who's not Hillary Clinton, you have yeah. a very different
1: race. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh,
0: but I think uh, there'll be more about that. And as a matter of fact, as we're getting clo- it's bizarre to think, but we're getting closer and closer to November, which is a little bit scary when you're an academic. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but in other voting news, Major, excuse me, uh, Missouri rejected by a two to one margin, no less, a right to work law, which is actually kind of a centerpiece of uh, Florida and now Oklahoma. And this has been seen as a big win for unions. So I'm I'm kind of curious, Michael, what do you think does this mean for unions potentially? What do you think uh, this means for kind of trends in the November election or just on its face about right to work laws?
1: Well, you know, I I think we should maybe start by just in case there are some listeners who aren't aware what what right to work laws basically do essentially and what they do is in states that have passed these so-called right to work laws what that means is that people cannot be essentially forced to contribute to a union and now the the thing you might say well why should somebody be forced to contribute to a union well the argument is this is that if you are benefiting from the union collectively bargaining on your behalf you should therefore contribute to that union. And if you're given the option of not contributing to the union, but getting those benefits, there becomes a strong incentive to become what's called a free rider, which is just a, you know, a, a economics, political science term for where you get the benefits, but you don't have to pay in. And of course, people being people, well, if you can get something for nothing, if you think you can, that's going to be kind of a very strong motivation. And so, uh, you know, uh, we have now 27 states that have these so-called right to work laws. And uh, what we've seen, as you would expect, in uh, at the uh, study when that was done when there were just 26 of them, that union membership actually declined in 20 of those 26 states, which again is. What you would expect, and I think you know there are a couple ways to look at this. From the, I would say, from the the, the liberal side, my side of thing. You could talk about the conservative side. Is that this is an attempt, part of a long-standing attempt by Republicans to essentially try to make life a little harder for a group that tends to uh, very much go in favor of Democrats, not not hugely in presidential races, but at the congressional level, certainly unions tend to organize and support Democrats a lot more than than Republicans. And part of Part of politics, of course, is trying to starve your opponents of resources, and this is, I would say, exactly what's been happening here. Now, there's a conservative rationale for this, but I think you're probably a better one to (laughs) articulate that than I am, certainly.
0: Yeah, you know, and again, I I understand that you have there are free rider problems, Uh, but from the conservative libertarian point of view, I'll, I'll even use myself as an example. When I was out of graduate school, I had the opportunity to work in two different states. One was in Illinois, uh, which still and, and remains a, a union-shopped state, and so the school for which I was actually uh, interested in, in working was a union shop. And then the one in Florida was not because it's a right to work, it's a right to work state. And it was interesting because the benefit packages and all of those other kinds of things were identical. Uh, but union dues ended up being somewhere in the realm of three grand a year uh, for my level of when I was coming in. And so it made it a really difficult, uh, despite liking a lot of people in Illinois, it was a difficult decision, but we ended up moving to Florida, but in in large part because of the right to work law. So I understand that there are benefits, but I think from the conservative point of view, what we're going to say is, is that Oftentimes speaking, there can be some true negatives uh, to... Having employment tied to a specific union dude membership requirement, uh, and that can it can take the the it can take a bite out of your bottom line, especially when you're talking about uh, trying to kind of you know get that first job and get that first paycheck. And so I think it's interesting that Missouri has uh, rejected it. Not so much I don't think this is so much on ideological grounds as I think it has to do with kind of broader trends taking place in the nation right now.
1: Well I, I I certainly hope there will those are the broader trends. But I mean, if we take a look, you know, uh, over a longer period of time, certainly uh, back in uh, the early 70s, which is sort of the height uh, of unionization in America, around a quarter of all Americans were part of a union. And now it's somewhere around 11% or so. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of economists who have made, and these economists were pr- are predominantly from uh, kind of center left and from the left, who make the argument that the decline in your mem- union membership is one of the reasons why we've seen. The growth of of inequality, and I, I certainly uh, tend to agree with, with those economists. But there are you know there are conservative economists who uh, I would say incorrectly make a, another argument certainly, and I I would disagree with that. So I, again, I see this as part of a decades long push. And I think you would agree with me that there has been a, a decades-long push by conservatives to try to uh, minimize the power of unions. Now, you would say that was for good ends, and I would say that that certainly is not at all for good ends, and it's up hurting average American workers, which is, that's one of these fundamental splits between the Republican and Democratic parties here.
0: Well, you know, one statistic that I'd point to, and again, we're going to probably view this in a different lens, is is when you take a look at the states that have had, the most economic growth and the most increase in population, they have tended to be the earliest adopters of the right to work laws, which potentially means that workers are choosing with their feet, um, kind of like that I had, uh, to move to the states that have those kinds of opportunities. Now, the question about inequality, I, I think that you have to be just willfully blind to recognize that there has been an increase in inequality. Um, however, the question of its causality, I think, is what we're going to ha- be up for grabs, I think, among reasonable people.
1: <laughs> yeah Well, you know, and, and there, there may be I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar w- with with those arguments about increased growth and, and, and there may be something to that, uh, which is why I would argue that it becomes it could become potentially kind of a, a race to the bottom thing, saying, you know, essentially where one state tries to make itself more uh, more hospitable. To uh, to owners of businesses by saying, "Look, we'll we'll lower your labor cost here as opposed to this other state," which is why I think that that uh, this is the case where where federal legislation makes a lot more sense. I would love to see something like that in my in my uh, dreams. Certainly not something that's going to happen anytime soon. And you know, before we moved on, though, I did want to point out also that this ties into a big Supreme Court case that was just decided recently, and that was uh, where the court ruled that it was actually un constitutional for public sector unions to require these collective bargaining fees from workers now the reason why i should point out this doesn't apply to private sector unions is the argument is that when when the union is a government union essentially every benefit that you that you bargain for comes out of tax dollars or Potentially. So it's inherently political. There's no way to separate sort of political activity from collective bargaining for wages and benefits. And that's not the case for private sector unions, which is why that didn't apply to private sector unions. But really, the public sector unions now are the strongest segment of union membership in the United States, with private sector union membership dropping considerably, not just because of a much less uh, hospitable legal environment, but also because of globalization, outsourcing, and, and all that sort of thing, which are very important factors as well.
0: And Michael before we move on to the next topic it was uh, apparent to me the other day when I was thinking about this but now I can't what year cuz congress passes a law that uh makes it a state by state issue on unions and I cannot remember when that happens
1: you know I'm I'm blanking on the year too uh but uh, but again like I said I think that, that to me is the argument is I can understand why states especially conservative legislators in states would say listen we understand that one of the biggest costs for businesses is paying people. And if we can make it possible for them to pay people less, that's going to be more attractive to them. And, and I get that, certainly. Agreed. Oh, excuse me. But, you know, before we do move on, can we, can we, thank, can we take a minute to thank some people? We better. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's do that then. Uh, We have a number of new Patreon supporters this week. Uh, First off, thank you to Donna, who is one of our newest Patreon supporters. We really do appreciate your support. Um, And let's see, we have another new Patreon supporter, Um, Linux Lefty. That's the name that he or she uh, gave. I I love that. Uh, I love that name. Uh, And Linux Lefty writes... Uh, Hi there. This past week, my favorite political podcast, Unfilter, from Jupiter Broadcasting, shut down. While I was searching for alternatives, I came across your show, and I love the conversation and that you present multiple points of view. I signed up as a patron. Keep up the great work. So that was um – that's very sweet. nice. We appreciate that. And I should mention to the Linux lefty, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that you picked that name for for a reason. And I actually have a, a certain amount of Linux experience in my past. I was a, a Red Hat user many, many years ago and not too long ago. I played around with Ubuntu and I'm actually currently thinking about changing one of my machines to uh, Bodhi. Uh, Linux, So I don't know if uh, I'll, I'll have the time to do that before the school year starts. So uh, I'm a big fan uh, of open source software and Linux. So uh, but thank you for your support. Um, let's see here. Next, we have Steve, Steve. Uh provided a very generous monthly sustaining pledge to the show through not through paypal or sorry not through patreon but through paypal and steve we really do appreciate uh, that uh, generous uh, monthly donation it's going to help us out a lot thank you and finally we have martin who donated to the show through PayPal. Uh, Martin writes, I wanted to contribute and give feedback. I honestly have a hard time listening to the show after you both agree, this is a while back, that the Parkland, Florida students were not old enough to understand the issues. Our history is full of young people that while not seasoned and lettered were visionary enough to see that change was needed and had the courage to stand and lead a movement. In fact, it often takes the young to point out the flaws and idiocy of the, quote-unquote, responsible adults. I realize one segment should not ruin my admiration for the show, so I will give it another try. Well, thanks, Martin. We, we appreciate you not only giving it another try, but supporting the show. And, and for those of you who may not remember, the, Martin's uh, comment is in reference to a show Jay and I did a while back where Jay was basically... Uh, and I, I uh, Jay, correct me if I'm wrong here, but basically arguing that a lot of these students who were protesting really were just kind of getting caught up in the emotion of things and didn't really appreciate the the broader issues and didn't have that depth of understanding. And that was something that some conservative commentators were arguing. And I didn't really agree with him on that though i did agree certainly that emotion is something that gets people involved and i think that can be a very good and positive thing and i have been a big fan of all the energy and passion that young people have brought to politics in recent years i was one of those young people many many moons ago doing that and i think it i think it's a, a great thing uh, and i just you know certainly hope that people can pair that passion and that energy with an interest in really digging into the issue and, and getting that kind of deeper understanding. And I think those things can work very well together. That's awesome. I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure you agree with that.
0: Oh, heavens, yeah. As a matter of fact, I remember we had a lot of uh, comment on social media after the after that particular episode.
1: Absolutely. Um, Also, I should mention, folks, that when you become a supporter of the show, it's not only that kind of warm glow you get for helping us keep the show going, and we do appreciate that, but you also do get something uh, special, our thank you, and that's access to our special supporters only after show uh, last week, Jay and I on the show talked about the TSA's Quiet Skies program and that kind of war of ideas between Donald Trump and the Koch Brothers Network. Uh, and Jay also mentioned this nine-year-old science, pro- this nine-year-old kid science project became apparently the basis for an environmental campaign. Weird. Uh, this week, Trey and I will we'll talk about some some pretty interesting stuff as well. So, and if you do want to support us, I'm sure you know how to do it. At this point, just go to politicsguys.com/support. That's a direct link or just go to politicsguys.com and you'll see the support uh, information right there on the site. So, thank you so much. We appreciate it.
0: We really do. All right.
1: So, Trey, what do we have next?
0: Well, next up, I'm I'm not thinking to be surprised anybody, but we have the Manafort trial because this has been the ongoing saga that has just I mean, anybody who's in politics is fascinated by what's happening here and the implications. And yesterday, Friday, was a particularly kind of rife with speculation day uh, because Ellis, the judge, uh, had actually had a long, unexpected delay. And so everyone's been kind of hypothesizing as to why, what's been going on. Uh, And this is, I mean, the whole trial itself is fascinating because you already have one individual who's done a plea bargain, Gates, who has admitted to wrongdoing with Manafort. And this deals directly with foreign bank accounts. And it's not a happy position for the Trump campaign because both Manafort and Gates had top posts in Trump's 2016 campaign. So you have Lots of different angles about this case. I mean, it's fascinating on its, on its front, but about what it kind of uh, delves into as well. But there's a lot happening here. So Mike, what do you think are the kind of the main themes, the main things that we should be thinking about?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I'll admit that I haven't probably been following this as closely as some other people. I, to me, and, and certainly I'm interested in, 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 the, in the verdict, it's always difficult to know, but it seems to me that what we have here are two fundamentally greedy, sleazy people. Um, and uh, one of these greedy, sleazy, sleazy people decided to cut a deal against the other greedy, sleazy person. And I, I don't know if this has anything to do With the Russia investigation, I, as I I mentioned last week when Jay and I were talking about it, I I assume that if uh, if they can, you know, obviously that this was done to get some sort of leverage over Manafort and or Gates to, you know, get them to tell what they what they might know about Donald Trump and Russian interference. But that aside, certainly the things that they are accused of doing are illegal things. And we know both sides admit that illegal things happened. It's not that's not the question, right? The question is who is responsible for them. And and to me, I mean, is, is Gates a super credible witness? Well, I I don't know that he's like I said all that all that credible. But I both of them just give me kind of that icky sort of you know sleazy greedy feeling. And uh, I you know I it seems to me that that the Paul Manafort's in a certain amount of trouble and things don't look good for him, but. Despite the judge's calls to not make this about Donald Trump and Russian interference and fake rigged witch hunts and all that other stuff, you know, all it would take would be, you know, a member of the jury to decide that he or she is going to do the whole nullification thing and and, uh, you know, uh, decide that uh, uh, Paul Manafort doesn't deserve to be uh, punished for this because of Donald Trump. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I. It's interesting to me because I agree with you. This is an example of where, and don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that uh, everybody is always not sleazy or that everybody's always sleazy. But it's always particularly kind of horrendous when, you know, you you get into the particular sleaze here, and that's that that is Gates and that's Manafort. But I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to say that this is just another bit of the the drip, drip for Trump. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have to be explicitly about him, but the more that there are stories about foreign bank accounts, the more there are stories about uh, working with Ukrainians, none of that is good news for Trump. And I don't care what anybody tweets, and I don't care what any of these Trump supporters think. This does not help him in the slightest. And I, and I I don't see whether he gets convicted or not. The the inevitability of this being in the news every day for the you know, that is a harm for
1: Trump. Yeah, you know, I I agree to an extent, I guess. I think think you're right in in the sense that this certainly doesn't do him any good. But I think that his strategy from the beginning has been, I would say, a a very smart strategy. And that was to essentially inoculate himself against anything that could come out by simply convincing his core supporters that anything that was even a little bit anti-Trump was, on the face of it, illegitimate. Now, that is a a smart strategy, I think, for an individual, uh, Donald Trump. But I think it is an incredibly destructive strategy for uh, faith in in American institutions and so forth. And so it's an incredibly cynical, destructive thing. But I've said from the beginning that. you know, I think that Donald Trump is about the furthest thing from a patriot. I think that Donald Trump doesn't give a uh, uh, – well, well, this is a clean show. Donald Trump doesn't <laughs> care at all about this country. I, I think his patriotism is about uh, uh, a millimeter thick, and everything is about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's family and Donald Trump's – not even his family. What am I saying? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. Trump, and that's really where his world begins and ends. And I, I, I think that's horrible for the country. And I actually pity the man uh, for that, so because that sounds like a horrible way to to live and be a human being. So, but unfortunately, that 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 this this broken, twisted man is the leader of the free world.
0: So to, to bring us back from the brink there, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, uh, yes, please well, I'm going to
0: ask it and say, so well, basically, you know, uh, Trump is evil, I hear that. but you don't seem to agree that the Manafort trial will necessarily be harmful to him, or do you, and do you think that this will be harmful or another factor that needs to be taken into account? We were talking about it earlier, uh, the midterm elections?
1: I don't really. I mean, I think maybe on the margins a little bit, but uh, as opposed to on the margins a lot, yeah, on the margins, p- perhaps. But I think that given the amount of polarization we see and given the filter bubbles people put themselves in and given what a good job, according to you know a lot of polling data that President Trump has done at getting people to believe that anything that's anti-Trump is completely bogus. Uh, And, you know, he's gotten an assist from the, uh, you know, the sort of hyper sensationalistic media on both sides of things. I just don't, I see the damage being somewhat limited. You know, some people are... I've been reading lately a biography of Nixon. Maybe that's why I'm thinking about this. And, you know, people have been making Watergate uh, uh, Watergate comparisons for a while now. I don't think they're apt at all. Um, uh, for one reason, uh, the, the two individuals involved are very different. But more importantly, we had a vastly different media universe. Trust in institutions was way higher and people could actually be led to question their beliefs in a way that I don't think most people can anymore. And so I don't care how bad things get. I mean, I sort from, you know, Donald Trump, remember when he was a candidate, made that joke about uh, how he could go out and shoot somebody and his and his uh, followers wouldn't desert him. I don't think it's quite that that. Level, But I think it's pretty close to that. And I think it's just Donald Trump brilliantly understanding the moment we are in in our society and taking advantage of that. And that's that's to the to the benefit of Donald Trump to the detriment of our society.
0: I tried to pull us back from the Brink listeners. I really did, but uh, uh, it yeah, didn't I, work.
1: Uh, <laughs> my apologies, folks.
0: <laughs> no, I understand. Uh, I mean, and that's something that we've been talking about with listeners for a while, for a number of weeks, you know, <clears throat> kind of trying to balance, you know, you, 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 get the, you can't help but be emotional when you think about these things. Uh, as the famous uh, political scientist E.E. E. Schneider, do you know his quote about, you know, the anthill?
1: I don't know the anthill quote. Yeah.
0: He, he was once asking, he said, well, do, you, you know, do you basically, do you feel like an entomologist studying ants? And he said, no, it's like an ant studying ants. <laughs> and, you know, when, when you're doing this kind of stuff, you can't help but remember you're part of the, yep. you know, you're part of the system. And so it is difficult sometimes to kind of pull back and ask you know, is my analysis being based in the evidence of what's happening or is it happening because I'm one of the ants in the anthill? Sure. Uh, Yeah. And
1: and I would say pulling back, pulling myself back from the brink, I I would again say, I guess my my political science sort of point is that uh, public opinion has hardened to the point where I think that the amount of damage that almost anything uh, that is revealed, or reported about Donald Trump can do to his base has been minimized compared to what we might have seen historically. So, is that is that a, is that a less brinky kind of way of putting it, in? Well, it does make you
0: sound like you're less likely to just board up and stop the podcast. And, there we uh, go. Okay.
1: <laughs> good, good. I, but glad I, I have on. really
0: no positive news for our next uh, segment on that front because we're taking a look at Representative Collins, who's the uh, Republican New York representative and he was indicted by federal prosecutors on charges of insider trading on Wednesday. And this is actually a really interesting story and so I've been I was reading about this and just kind of the quick takeaway for listeners because I know you know finance stuff can sometimes feel a little uh, intimidating. I don't think it always yeah. is intimidating as, as it seems, but the the quick version is basically the congressman was on the board of an Australian biotechnology company and he found out that they had failed their one and only product testing so that they were going to be able to sell nothing. <laughs> so not good. He, yeah, that's, that's really not good. So he panics. And to kind of cut some losses, he calls his son immediately after he finds this out and says, son, this, this company is going under. Sell it all right now,
1: and at so, least that's our assumption. I mean, there were a whole bunch of a whole bunch of calls right away, so we don't actually know. But I mean, it's not like he was saying, "So, how's the family?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it seems well, this is, this, this is
0: at least the alleged. This is the federal prosecutor's <laughs> yeah. case, right? So again, right, I'm not right. suggesting this is you know the definitive truth. This is just the federal prosecutor's case. Right. He called a son, uh, and so he sells you know nearly a million dollars worth of stock and ends up as a result potentially having missed out on losses. Of about you know half a million, um, and so he has now been indicted, and so this has raised. It's fascinating to watch all the questions this has raised. You know, is he going to resign? What happens if he doesn't? You know, Paul Ryan has stripped him of his seat. So, what do you kind of think about this, Michael? And does it kind of fit into that bleak narrative that we were having a minute ago, or is this its own thing?
1: Well, I guess I have some thoughts on the micro level and the macro level. On the micro level, I just think, wow. That was stupid. Um, you know, (laughs) um, because I mean, this is like, I don't know how more, how much more obvious you could be on this argument that, well, I didn't sell any of my own stock. Now there's, there's actually some question as to whether he would have even been able to, had he wanted to, uh, or, and we won't get into the weeds on that, but this is a pitiful defense. He just like I think I, that's that, what his
0: that's, that's the defense. His lawyer just had like yeah. in public, just a heads up. I mean, this isn't Michael just speculating. His lawyer
1: said, "Well, he didn't sell any of his period." Right? I, yeah. You know. So that, I mean, I think you have to say something on behalf of your client. Not that well, my my client was incredibly stupid, and what are you going to do? I mean, that's not a defense. But but I guess it's stupid not only because of that, because he should have known better. But um, if you're going to be crooked be smarter about it but secondly, here's a guy who you know he had a potential loss for his, for his son at uh, anywhere from I saw figures from uh, five hundred thousand to seven fifty thousand this is a guy whose net worth is somewhere around seventy million dollars so I mean when you think about the cost benefit analysis here so just on a on a personal level, just incredibly incredibly dumb now. I should also point out that uh, at least five sitting Republican members of the House bought stock in this same obscure Aust- uh, uh, Australian pharmaceutical company with no products uh, in 2017. Uh, apparently, the I, I guess, from tips from, from Collins. And so this, um, this is where I get to the macro level. At the macro level, I think there are two things that I think happen that shouldn't happen. Number one, I think members of Congress— should not be allowed to be on the boards of publicly traded companies. And the fact that they are, I think that just sets up far too many potential conflicts of interest. Secondly, uh, I think that members of Congress shouldn't be allowed to trade stocks in publicly traded companies for exactly the same reason, because their exposure to insider information is just simply Great. Now, I know that people might say, well, you know, that that seems kind of unfair. You're putting these restrictions on them. So forth." I'd say, well, they're in a. Very special, unique situation, but I would balance that by saying that I think that members of Congress is going to be an unpopular thing, Trey. Members of Congress are incredibly underpaid. Uh, Now, the current congressional salary is one hundred seventy four thousand dollars a year. That hasn't changed in nearly a decade. And if you take a look at what the salary of a member of Congress was 50 years ago, it was $30,000 a year, which sounds like peanuts. But if you adjust that for inflation, that's uh, $221, almost $222,000 in 2018 dollars. In other words, $48,000 less than they're currently getting. So what I would propose, I'd like to see congressional salaries go up to somewhere maybe like around $500,000 a year and then index those salaries to inflation and try to set it up so that it essentially becomes an automatic thing, just like uh, Social Security is indexed for inflation, that sort of thing. I think that would make, not only would that make corruption less of a temptation, at least somewhat less, but also, and maybe more importantly, I think it would open up the job to more people. Because now to a lot of folks, I'm sure to a lot of listeners, heck uh, heck to me, $174,000, that sounds like a lot of money. But when you're talking about essentially running two households, one in Washington, D.C. area, which is a pretty expensive place to live, you know, it really is hard to do on – $174,000 $174,000 a year, believe it or not. So I think there's a great case to be made for putting more restrictions on Congress. And I would also include some much tighter restrictions on post-congressional career lobbying, but giving them a much healthier salary. So that's kind of my macro thoughts on that, Trey.
0: Well, you know, I, I'm going to agree in part. And I think having members of Congress on public traded boards is and will continue to be a mistake and I can't agree more with you because there is just simply no way that I'm not sure how once you take into that situation, you even if you're not being Collins, right? So let's step back from that for a second. I'm not sure how, in those positions, you would you could operate in a sense without the information you're going to get, because you're right. going to have ideas of what's going to happen on your committee. And if you happen to have, and, and it's going to be more than just happen chance, if the company that you're sitting for a board on, and you have information on that side, and you have a pretty good idea of what's happening in your committee before anybody else does, there is no way that you can't be tra- can't be trading with insider information. I mean, it just. By definition. So, on that front, I wholeheartedly agree. Now, I do, I completely understand your argument for wanting to increase salaries, uh, but I think that you would find that a very, very difficult pragmatic position to implement. And and in part, that is, I mean, take a look. One of the things that a lot of people uh, loved about Donald Trump was his kind of thing, well, I'm going to do it for free, right? You know, I don't need the salary, and that's, you know, blah, blah, blah. I would argue, and this is something that you know, I think we we both would agree on. When you take a look at the early founders, and one of the things that they struggled with was to make sure that individuals were adequately paid. And as a matter of fact, uh, George Washington, he in a couple of instances took a salary that was not perfectly necessary in his case because he wanted future presidents to be able to be paid. right? And, and I Great recognize point. how it's easy to say, oh, well, it's better to do it just for the love of doing it. But just kind of like this podcast, when we make pleas for uh, funds, you know, somebody's, there has to be some way of making the equipment happen. There has to be some way of making it to town. There has to be some way of living in Washington, D.C., And if you take a look at the Washingtons and the Jeffersons and the early characters, they have all... Been on the side of you need to pay people adequately to get things done. Jefferson in, in Paris, for example, arguing that we need to make sure that ambassadors can, you know, not on their own dime meet with foreign dignitaries. Yeah, and so I, I agree with you on that front wholeheartedly. But I, I do think that you might you would if we wanted to make this a pragmatic proposal. I think you might have to part it back just a little bit. Not because I don't yeah. di- I disagree at the macro level, but I just I'm not sure that's be a possibility yeah. pragmatically.
1: Yeah no I think the way it would have to be uh, presented would be very differently from how it it, it always has been but but uh, uh you know I think that was a great kind of historical point you brought up there. And there like I said, there are there are good reasons for that. And and also, you know, I should point out that a lot of people have this misconception of members of Congress as being lazy, which has always blown my mind because it is such incredibly grueling work. You know, I mean they look at like what the legislative calendar is and it's, oh, they're getting like four days a week off. <laughs> no, no, this is a this is like a 60, 70, 80 plus hour a week job that is just incredibly tough. These people work so very hard. And when you compare what they could be doing and the salaries they could be making, it is a it is a big sacrifice. And I feel, you know, our institutions, I believe, were set up so that Men wouldn't have to be angels, you know, and if you set things up so that people have to make these huge sacrifices and and have these high moral standards for the system to work, you're going to have a failed system. We want to we want to set up a system to make sure that isn't a requirement, you know,
0: so. Agreed. And, you know, just for an aside here, I'm going to plug us. It's the same kind of argument that I hear about academics all the time. Oh, well, you do that job because you get the whole summer off. Mm -hmm. Come take a look at our summer.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: OK, but I think that uh, we probably need to move on to next is the private comments at a closed fundraiser. we got to oh. be careful. We have to make sure that uh, Mueller will not be able to take the president out. What do you think about this, Michael? I mean, this is fascinating well, on a lot yeah. of levels.
1: Well, you know, I, I think Devin Nunes was being Devin Nunes. Um, I mean, he's been a pretty strong supporter of President Trump. Right from right from the get go. Um, so I guess there are a couple of levels, again, to look at this on. And one thing I think that applies to everyone, and this is a bipartisan thing, is, you know, the new political reality is you should always assume that everything you're saying is being recorded and it's going to be broadcast and now we've learned this time and time and time again, and, and Nunes is not an old guy. I mean, he's in his he's in his mid forties, and so he's not you know this kind of creaky creature of the past. So maybe he just doesn't care. I, I given his given what we know about him, I, I think maybe that's a a fair thing to say. But to me, the disturbing thing is that you would think that we've gotten to the point where people in leadership positions in Congress are thinking more in terms of protecting their side than their institutional duties and their duties to the Constitution and so forth. And, you know, I would want people to say and believe that, you know, to the extent that I can protect my president, I certainly will. But if he's found to be guilty, well, then, you know, then the chips have to fall where they may. And that's where I come back to the Watergate thing again. They were playing. I mean, Nixon resigned because he realized that he had lost the Republicans in Congress. And, uh, you know, I don't think that really happens with uh, people like Devin Nunes, though, to be fair, and it's important to kind of not just take that one comment out of context. He did go on to make other comments about criminal activity. And, well, if there is criminal activity, though, he used this in terms of a hypothetical candidate and he didn't want to, obviously, entice. Donald Trump even hypothetically to criminal activity. So what would happen if push came to shove? I don't know, but I think it would take an awful lot for the Devin Nuneses of of the GOP to kind of essentially abandon Donald Trump, no matter what was found, no matter what Robert Mueller comes out with. Now, that's not to paint all Republicans with that same broad brush. I certainly don't want to do that. I think there are plenty of uh, somewhat more moderate Republicans, but then there are the sort of – there are the never Trumpers, but then there are the always Trumpers. And they're a small you – know, kind of uh, the smaller group, but uh, to the extent that they are in positions of authority, that uh, – I think that's a, a legitimate uh, reason for concern. What do you think, Trey?
0: It's interesting because I I have been involved significantly with a number of uh, candidates in the past. I mean, just to be clear, I I don't do that anymore. I'm an academic. Um, But I, I honestly think that Nunas here, this is part of a longstanding tradition. I think many people would probably be very surprised whether they were in a Republican or a Democratic fundraiser to kind of see the terminology and rhetoric that are oftentimes used to energize those individuals. Right. Uh, And so I think one thing that the average person has to realize, I've been in many of these for both camps. It's a little different.
1: <laughs> it could be a lot different. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, that's
0: a great point. I mean I, I have seen – and again, you know, this is, this, this is behind closed doors. I have seen both Democrats and Republicans have maybe one too many of the wines with uh, the high payers, and the, the tongue is a little bit looser than it ought to be. And I think to, in today's environment, you're absolutely right. Anything you're saying can be. We all have the ability to make these recordings and to make videos, and they can get out and they can get out quickly. But I think it's going to take some time for the kind of institutional cultural uh, fallout to kind of make that trickle down. And I and I think that right here again, don't don't hear me wrong. I'm not arguing that uh, I, I agree with everything Nunes has said or done. But I would say that in the context of what he was talking, it's probably not as far afield as it seems standing alone by itself.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's I think that's uh, a fair assessment. And, like I said, even though Nunes is not an old guy by political standards, I think you're right in that the, the political environment he came up in. Was a different kind of pre iPhone ish sort of world and so forth, and so I think we're not going to really see this shift become or this become much more sort of ingrained in in politicians for a little while yet, just given that kind of lag between what you're brought up and how you're you know taught to do things and so forth, as opposed to what the what the reality of technology is today.
0: And, and just to put that kind of timeline in perspective, you know, when I was in When I was both an undergraduate, as well you know, uh, you know, this wouldn't have been as possible. I mean, today, I always assume that all of my students are recording me, even if I haven't given anyone permission or thought about it. Uh, But I would have never considered as a student, anybody recording, uh, you know, any of my professors yeah. in part, because I wouldn't have assumed they would have been rich enough to be able to do uh-huh. it. <laughs> so, you know, that, and I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm going to be turning 35. So, you know, that's a relatively recent
1: development. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that, I think that's a, a great point. We'll, we'll see, we'll certainly see that, a uh, shift, but it's going to take a while.
0: For sure. For sure. But I think we have a few more comments, Michael, so...
1: Um, Well, you know, yeah, I wanted to say before, uh, because I know we're we're running uh, close to the end of our time, but before we do go, I wanted to let everyone know that, you know, as as soon as you and I, as as soon as we're done recording this show, we are going to be doing that special supporters after show. And uh, I think this week, one of the things I think we should be talking about probably uh, that the whole uh, really interesting uh, back and forth between Donald Trump's attorneys and Robert Robert Mueller's team as to how an interview with uh, Mueller or Mueller's representative and Trump might actually shake out. And also that big thing this week, and we talked about it a lot on the Facebook page, about uh, Alex Jones' infowars being pulled from a lot of social media and podcast services and, and what we think about that. I think those would be some really interesting things to talk about.
0: Agreed. So we hope that you'll join us then in a few minutes uh, for that supporters exclusive show and join us again during the week. And I hope that you liked what you've heard. Listeners, you can head to politics.com slash support or head to politics.guys.com and click on support and you can subscribe there. You can share episodes. As a matter of fact, if you support us today, you can still grab that bonus show. It is very helpful if you'll share us on iTunes and rate us on iTunes. You can get a hold of us at mail at politicsguys.com. We had some issues with that, but it's back up and working perfectly. You can also, as always, get us on Facebook and on Twitter. On Facebook, it's facebook.com politicsguys or on Twitter, it's at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. This show is produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll have a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.
1: Okay.